Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read the 1997 book, Only the Paranoid Survive by Andy Grove. Grove was the longtime storied CEO of Intel, and his 1983 book, High Output Management, was the topic of our first episode of Business Books and Company. Only the Paranoid Survive is about strategic inflection points in a business. Grove explains how to detect these events, how to respond to them, and he recites some more stories about some of the strategic inflection points that Intel faced and some throughout the rest of the computer industry. But before we get to the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former management consultant. Hey, my name is Molson Hart. I run a toy company and the litigation financing business. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So who is this author? We talked about him before. We talked about him on episode one of the podcast. But let's remind everybody, because not everybody's listening every episode, who's Andy Grove? So Andy Grove was born Andras Istvan Grof in Hungary in 1936. He survived the Holocaust in German-occupied Hungary uh, under a false identity and staying with some friends uh, with his mother. His father actually was arrested and sent to a forced labor camp, but uh, did manage to survive the war. He was then in Budapest for the siege by the Red Army, and ultimately he was able to escape communist Hungary at the age of 20, and he eventually made it to America, where he first studied chemical engineering at City College, then went to Berkeley and got a PhD in chemical engineering. Uh, His first job was at Fairfield Electric, and it was there that he met Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore, who ultimately founded Intel. He is not technically listed as a founder of Intel, but he did join um, on the day of incorporation and was the director of engineering. He eventually became the CEO from 1987 to 1998 and remained chairman until 2004. Uh, He died in 2016. Okay, so how did you guys like the book? Kind of sucked. And why? I mean, like, it's a good book, but like, it's... I guess I got anchored to high output management, which is like an amazing book. And there were just like kind of aspects of this book that felt like it was just kind of rushed. And it felt also like it wasn't a coincidence that this book coincided with Intel's big like marketing push. Like I I think he explains in the book how like prior to, I don't know what year they started doing this, but originally Intel was a, a business to business company. And then they kind of switched over to, this like Intel inside concept, which I think was really clever and smart, but, and everyone knows that because you used to get a little sticker on your laptop and it kind of felt like this book was like part of that marketing push in a way. If you look at the cover, right? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that I, I actually, I totally agree that high output management is probably the single best business book I've ever read. And so, you know, that's a really uh, you know, steep bar to try and clear. And I don't think this succeeds in being better than high output management. And frankly, as I was reading the first few chapters, I was really pretty disappointed with it. I mean, it was fine, but it just felt like, you know, if you've read any Clayton Christensen or, you know, Michael Porter, it was like kind of just a lot of common business advice. Um, but later on in the book, when he gets into the details of the strategic inflection points for Intel, I actually did really enjoy it. So, I mean, I think I gave it four stars on Goodreads. I didn't, you know, didn't give it five, which I'm sure I did for high output man- management. But I, I did enjoy it. I, I did think it was really interesting to see how he thought through strategic inflection points, the advice that he gives for as a CEO, how can you sort of navigate these situations? And frankly, I think, you know, Almost every company in the world is in a strategic inflection point right now. And so I think it was definitely a good time to be reading it. We've already used the term several times. I think we really need to define what a strategic inflection point is. So let's see if I can find the quote from Andy, but basically says... um, So I'll just riff on that while David gets the proper definition. I'll give you guys something that probably makes no sense. Um, Every now and again, the marketplace is in a constant state of flux. And, you know, government regulations can change the marketplace. A rising nation like Japan or in my own career, China can change the marketplace. A strategic inflection point would be this like what I think uh, Grove calls a 10x force. So not like a minor change, but like a major change that requires you to completely change the way you do business. And if you don't change the way you do business, you die. And if you do, it's an opportunity to grow your business to new heights. 
that. So that's strategic inflection. I think that's a great definition, Molson. And obviously, we're going through that right now with the coronavirus and with all the changes that have happened to our economy and also how that's affected whole industries. I think that many people find themselves and businesses are going through strategic inflection points right now. And in fact, in the education space, which I work in, a lot of universities are facing students who say, you know what, if we're not going to be in person, why are we attending your university? Why aren't we just doing online education at some online school? So we're seeing enrollment way down, not necessarily my school, but a lot, but a lot of schools across the country are seeing enrollment has dropped precipitously because students kind of wonder, what is the real value of uh, in-person education when it's not really in person, or maybe they're even just questioning in general because they had that semester in the spring where they were at home and they were still doing their classes, and they're thinking, you know what, maybe I can do all this at home. So this is one example. Yeah, to run with that, I did finally find the quote. It's it's not exactly defining strategic inflection point, but it's a nice metaphor, I think. So when I think about what it's like to get through a strategic inflection point, I'm reminded of a classic scene in old Western movies in which a bedraggled group of riders is traveling through a hostile landscape. They don't know exactly where they are going. They only know that they can't turn back and must trust that they will eventually reach a place where things are better. Yeah. And he gives a, another definition, a shorter one in the, in the uh, introduction. He says, let me just say the strategic inflection point is a time in the life of a business when its fundamentals are about to change. Well, let me riff on one thing. So one of the things that I mentioned is it, it's an, also an opportunity to grow. So to take a, an example, I don't know what it's like to run a restaurant right now, but if you're running a restaurant right now, particularly in a state that's really hit by COVID, you know, if you can figure out a way to convert that restaurant into a restaurant that does like tons of pickup business, tons of delivery business, tons of, I, I don't know what, putting plexiglass barriers between all your customer business, that's an opportunity for you to maybe not grow the size of your business, but at least seize market share. And you can really kind of like boost your business. So, that's so coronavirus it's your restaurant strategic inflection point and then how you react to that is the is that's the opportunity to grow david chang is a founder of momofuku and so has sort of a, a little mini restaurant empire and uh i've been listening to his podcast and and um whatever following him on instagram and stuff like that and his company he says he's now decided that in five years um restaurant revenue needs to be i think he said less than one third of their total revenue um, right now, I think it's probably like 95% or something like that. And so they've moved into CPG. He just started selling these like seasoning salts, which I ordered. I'm, ex I'm excited for. But, you know, they're also going to make like, you know, soy sauces and stuff like that. So basically making products that would work for his restaurant, but then also can become, you know, consumer goods as well. So trying to find, you know, a new business model outside of just the the restaurants. That sounds like flailing to me. Like, honestly, how is somebody in the restaurant industry going to know how to go into CPG? Oh, um, those Chang, are... he knows. Yeah. Okay. He, right. So the thing about so the thing I was going to say is that uh, the restaurant business is like super tough even before the coronavirus happened. And yeah. a lot of these guys, I feel like they figure out like, hey, if I'm going to operate in this space, maybe I'll, I'll go into media. So Chang does like a ton of media. He's got the Netflix shows, and then he's like, all right, I've got this reach. I can use that to advertise products. And then he goes into consumer packed goods. The other kind of way that people make money in the restaurant business is like franchising it out and stuff like that. I think Chang will probably be successful because his Netflix specials are pretty good. Okay. So have you had some strategic inflection points in your business, Molson? Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, probably the best one, and this is going to sound lame, uh, is it in like in 2013, we had a, a single large brick and mortar retail customer that was accounting for, I don't know, let's say over 50% of our profits. And we were doing lots of uh, private label deals with them. And uh, we got in a dispute about the quality of the items that uh, we made for them. And they were supposed to pay us over five payments. And they didn't pay the fourth and the fifth, or they didn't pay the fifth payment, something like that. And fortunately, just kind of like, so, so basically what that represented to us is that if we can't, you know, if this customer tells us to go away, as they did effectively by telling us that they weren't going to pay for that, they, they took the goods. We had to come up with some other way to make money. And fortunately, maybe because I am paranoid by nature, the Christmas previous to them deciding to do that, I, I made a decision to kind of pivot our business towards e-commerce. 
And so we had started taking our products and putting them on on Amazon and stuff like that. So as soon as that like brick and mortar revenue like disappeared, I was able to, to more than compensate for it by basically replacing it with uh, e-commerce revenue. And so that's actually kind of similar in a way to what happened with Andy Grove. I'm going through another inflection point, which I can talk about later in my own business. But so Andy Grove, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Intel was making all of its money off of memories. And then Japanese came in and through some combination of amazing Japanese like competence and skill and possibly government subsidies, they just the Japanese started be- beating Intel on price and on quality. And so Grove and Intel had to pivot. That's right. Yep. And they pivoted to memories. So rather than pivoting... Uh, they, they pivoted to microprocessors. Microprocessors, not memories. My bad. Rather than pivoting a uh, distribution model, they had to pivot to... Uh, they pivoted basically product lines or yep. category. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and at the time, I believe they'd, they'd had a small group that was working on the, the processors, but it was it was... I think he said it was like less than 5% of their revenue or something like that. And so he basically decided to shut down 95% of their revenue and double down or, you know, 10x down on a tiny portion of their business. But it was something that he saw a future for because of the personal computer you know, revolution that was about to happen. And so it was, it was kind of a combination of, I think, luck and skill there that like there were tidal forces that were changing and Intel was, you know, positioned itself to succeed as the the PC revolution took over. Yeah, I mean he made it sound like this was, you know, such great foresight or such a great move, but it, it was pretty obvious really when you look at the timelines. So he said that that happened in the mid 80s, right? They came out with their first microprocessor, the Intel 4004 in the early 1970s, and they already had secured the IBM PC which came out in 1981 with the Intel 8088. And so by the time we're in the mid 80s, the PC industry is becoming totally dependent on their microprocessors. They still, by volume, might be selling a lot more memory chips than they are microprocessors, but it was pretty obvious by then that their microprocessors were going to drive the PC industry going forward. So, you know, I, I think it makes for a great story, but it's not, you didn't need to be a rocket scientist to see that their microprocessors were going to be at the forefront of their future business in the mid 1980s. I think, I think that's a good point, but what Grove says a lot, and I think actually is very true, is that it's you don't necessarily have to be a genius to see a lot of these things, but that it's really hard to fight against the momentum of what's worked in the past. That as the leader of a company, you know, you just people try to hide from you that they're struggling. Like people, you know, want to sugarcoat the way that things really are a lot of the time. And it's, you know, very difficult. And that he basically says a lot of times you have to bring in a new CEO to do these kinds of changes because the old CEO, even though he might be capable of executing that vision, he just he can't really do it because it's not what he thinks the business is and it's not what the business has grown into around him. Right. It takes a lot of guts to like cut your biggest revenue driver and or at least like de-emphasize it and move investment to something that's not your biggest revenue driver. Um, and I think, you know, one interesting thing he talks a bit about next in the book and Next was Steve Jobs' company between his two stints at Apple. And then when Steve Jobs and Andy Grove were actually like quite good friends, uh, a lot of people don't know that, even though Apple didn't use Intel microprocessors. Intel was one of the early investors from the Intel people in Apple. But anyway, Andy Grove and, had a, and Steve Jobs had like a lifetime friendship. And he like really learned the lessons of this book. He actually is quoted on the back saying what a great book it is. Uh, but when he came back to Apple in 97, he cut like so many of their old business lines that were definitely revenue drivers, but they were just so like not where the business was going in the future that he really streamlined and took the strategic inflection point of the internet and said, okay, we have to steer the whole business around this digital hub strategy of the PC, the in that case, the Macintosh being the digital hub for the, your home use of digital devices that then are connected to the internet. So like. I think there's some really nice, like, kind of, if you're a person who's a fan of Apple history, like, you can really see how when this book came out in 97, like, Steve Jobs is following that advice in 97. All right. So uh, one critique I want to make about, basically, I think these strategic inflection points are a lot murkier and more difficult to pull off 
in the moment than they are in retrospect. So like in retrospect, you can be like, oh, look, PC revolution, that's obviously going to happen. But in the mid 80s, how sure could you really be that everyone in the United States was going to have a computer in their home? And I think to illustrate that point, I could tell you right now that my business is in the midst of a strategic inflection point. And it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, where am I supposed to go? It's not totally, totally clear. And if I, I obviously, I know more about my own business than you guys. But on the flip side, like uh, Andy Grove says, some, or and like David Short just said, sometimes you need to bring in a new CEO. So I don't know if you'd be interested, but I could explain to you the, the difficulties we're having, the strategic inflection point we're suffering from. And you could tell me as a new CEO what's obvious, what we should do. I don't know. Yeah, tell us. All right. So um, we are getting killed by uh, competition from China. So basically, the factories that we used to purchase from in China, some of our own suppliers have literally just been like, oh, this, this Mike guy, Molson, whatever, he's making so much money on this product. We don't even need him. We'll just bypass him and go direct to the US market ourselves and we'll just sell our products on Amazon. So literally in the past couple of months, I, one of our suppliers just, he just copied all of our images, did a bunch, a whole bunch of nasty stuff, and he's selling against us. And he hasn't left us with enough time to even find another supplier. What am I supposed to do? This is happening with all my suppliers. Well, you know, what am I supposed to do with my, my business? Wow. I wish I had the answer for you. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have the comp- You have another company, Molson, where you sue people for IP infringement, right? Yeah, that's so- true. And this dude's going to get sued. Hopefully, he doesn't listen to this episode. But you know, like, is that is that the strategy? Is the strategy for me to just like sue everybody? I mean, what if, what if someone manages to to copy our products without infringing on our intellectual property? I can't. I can't just like start frivolous lawsuits. Like, how am I supposed to reorient my business? Or is my business just supposed to die? Like, you know, it's like maybe if if Intel didn't have that microprocessor business line, like, you know, are, are they just done? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you've had several hit products over the years, over the course of now almost a decade, right? And you've kind of gone from hit product to hit product, but you've been willing to move on at points, right? Like Kickbow was your first thing, right? And you moved on from Kickbow to like Badman- Goodminton, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you moved on from Goodminton and Brainflakes, right? Right. And so like each time you've had to find a new product and you have to be like something that'll a new wave that'll last you for a few years. And you might be at the end of the wave of brain flakes because of the copycats. And you might, do you have that pipeline? Like, do you have another product that you could start really getting excited about and and pushing? We don't have a new product. While that supplier thing that I described, that's actually happening to Goodminton, which is a racket game, but it has happened to, to brain flakes in the past. I have something in mind and we've started to test it and, and things are good, but um, just a really challenging situation and challenging situation because we have the warehouse, you know, we have these, you know, my employees are committed to selling physical products and to selling these products. And, you know, we've staked our, our reputation on that and it's really hard to pivot. I mean, we're going to do it or we're going to try, but it's tough. And it's not always clear whether or not it's going to work. I think it depends a lot on the product and stuff too. But to your fundamental question of, hey, Chinese companies, like my my big innovation beforehand was I'm going direct to China and then to the US customer. I'm like going around the, the retail distributors and sort of cutting out some costs and stuff like that. That way, that was like your big thing. Now, those Chinese uh, suppliers are saying, I don't need you. I can go straight. And Amazon will, you know, allow them to sell directly to the customers. So, you know, they don't need you. That is a strategic inflection point, And that is going to affect any additional product that Chinese manufacturers can create. So I would say the other option is, is there something that is, can be uniquely you, uniquely via heart, uniquely American? Yeah. I think a made in American product might be the next, you know, positioning for you to go after is, this is not the low quality, you know, Chinese crap you're getting on Amazon, which a lot of people are experiencing. Like my girlfriend gets even like beauty products that, you know, it's clearly shipping from China when it wasn't supposed to, like it didn't imply that that was going to happen at all. The thing comes in and it looks like it's half empty. She's like not confident it's even what she, what she was shopping for. Again, this is like an anecdotal thing, but I think it's, uh, you know, whatever you're starting, you're starting a business around suing on some of this copyright infringement type of stuff. Like people are definitely doing that actively. And so 
I don't think Amazon is really, it doesn't seem like they're doing anything to solve this problem. It seems like it is really hurting their brand. So I imagine that they will try at some point to do something just because I think customers are getting upset with Amazon about this. They don't think, oh, this Chinese supplier is sketchy. They think, oh, Amazon has bad product now. Like most people don't realize they're, you know, it's not fulfilled by Amazon, or even if it is fulfilled by Amazon, that it's, you know, not their product. When I think about your business, um, I think about it a little bit differently than sometimes you describe it, Molson. Like you often describe it as, you know, manufacturing business where you're manufacturing stuff in China and bringing it direct to consumers in the United States. Two previous exposures I've had to reading about the toy industry. One was Tom Kalinske, who used to be high up at Mattel and then was at Sega in the 90s. And another was an episode of the show The Profit, where he went to like an old school toy company or whatever and tried to revamp it. In both cases, the companies were described as basically fashion companies, like that, you know, that, that there's trends that come and go. And every year they had to be coming out with new toys um, and different kinds of toys. And it seems like you're more thinking about like, how can I deliver this, the products that I've been working before successfully the next season, instead of always thinking about what is the next trend? What is the next fashion? I don't know. That, that's, that's how it seems to me sometimes with you that, but I, I could be wrong and maybe you're spending tons of your time. But I would think that in the toy business, you'd be spending like 50 plus percent of your time thinking about what's the next product instead of trying to defend the last one. Or how do I change the last product a little bit to make it um, a little different for next season? It's hard, right? Kind of like it was hard in the book. It's hard to, to take this money pile or whatever and then be like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm just going to focus on the new thing in the hope that it works. It, it can be tough. But uh, yeah, I think I think my point is like kind of illustrative. You guys kind of see what I mean, right? So it's, it's yeah. not clear whether or not I'm going to survive. And like on a numbers basis, it wasn't really... I mean, in retrospect, yeah, microprocessors, PC revolution is happening. But like David Short said, it was only 5% of their business. And on 5% of the business, unless that starts growing like a rocket, it's hard to support all the employees. So it, there are all sorts of psychological forces that make it really difficult to pull one of these bad boys off, especially when you're a big company. I found a quote from the book that um, will perhaps be inspiring to you, Molson. I guess you just read it too. But when is the time right? When the momentum of your existing strategy is still positive, your business is still growing, your customers and complementers still think highly of you, yet there's enough evidence of blips on your radar screen to warrant, at a minimum, exploring their significance. If your exploration confirms that they are real and are, and are gaining, shift more resources onto them. Your tendency will almost always be to wait too long, yet the consequences of being early are less onerous than the consequences of being late. If you act too early, chances are the momentum of your previous business is still healthy. Therefore, even if you're wrong, you're in a better position to course correct. So. I mean, I know you've already built new businesses entirely, so you certainly are you know, taking action towards towards the future. But I, I thought it was a really good point that it's again, it's easy to just kind of like focus on where the money is, but you need to actually make the pivot while you do still have that old money coming in to be able to finance the you know new success. Especially in hardware, right? Like in Intel's case, they had to build like new plants and stuff like that. I mean, it sounded like there was some ability for them to allocate more resources towards microprocessors away from memories. But in hardware, to a lesser extent, software, you really, to David Short's point, you have to be paranoid, like the book title says, and you have to like think about that stuff well in advance so that you have time to pivot when that like little blip on your radar actually starts developing. And I think for a lot of people, this like this Chinese competition stuff, it's just a blip, but it's, it's going to get real big and we don't know what's going to happen. So got to prepare. I do think that the sort of pandemic and financial crisis we're going through is also an interesting time to be like confronting that as well, because there certainly are. I mean, I guess most recently people are, are much more focused on sort of inequity within America itself. But I think at the start of the pandemic, the sort of, you know, anti-Chinese uh, sentiment has probably never been higher in America, or at least not for not for a long time. And so I do think while I, again, uh, tend to be pretty open to, to free trade and whatnot, I don't am not open to you know, stealing other people's IP in order to you know, take action and stuff like that. So I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a tough situation. But honestly, that's sort of what, what made me jump to like, maybe you should do like Made in America. Maybe it should be like a flight to quality that like, you know, like, why is Lego still succeeding? Obviously, like there could there are I forget what it's called, Mega Blocks or whatever. But like those are like significantly lower quality. And like, why is that? Like, 
I, from what I've heard, it's like it actually is just really expensive to do what it is that Lego is doing, but they have crazy margins. So, I mean, why have they continued to succeed from, you know, the Netherlands? Lego prices are ridiculous. Le- Lego is so seasonal, though, right? When I was a kid, I was really into Lego. And every year I wanted to get like these new sets and they'd be advertised to me with different kinds of space sets and different kinds of like, you know, medieval sets and stuff like that. So it, again, fashion, like there's trends, there's fashion, right? It's, it's not, they didn't just sell the same Lego set every year. I do think that's something you can do with brain flakes that a Chinese competitor would have more difficulty doing. Now they yeah. can still rip you off every time you do it, but knowing what American children are likely to want to build and having designs and stuff that are focused on, you know, what's trending and interesting in the country is something that like a Chinese manufacturer is not going to be able to do themselves. But again, if once you've given it to them to create for you, then they can just, you know, take those same images. Yeah. Why haven't you created different, like, I don't know, maybe you have, I I don't know all your products, but have you created different sets of brain flakes for very specific kind of cultural phenomena? Like, let's say like a unicorn brain flake set or like a, um, you know, brain flakes to create like a branding. Have you had a deal with like Ninja Turtles to make Ninja Turtles brain flakes and stuff like that? Uh, No Ninja Turtles brain flakes, but um, yeah, we've released extra sets and we've done a, a couple of creative things that... Fortunately, so far, our competition hasn't realized is as important as I think they are. Um, But yeah, people knock us off all the same. So, you know, we have a race car helicopter fire truck set and literally someone else, uh, an American company, but of Chinese origin, uh, a big company called Picasso Tiles, knocked off that product to a T. So we, we show you how to build a race car fire truck and a helicopter, right? They didn't just offer a set that helps you build those three things. Their instructions and everything are exactly the same as ours. So um, it's tricky. What about a branding deal? Like getting somebody big on your side who would then be, who would totally sue somebody who knocked it off like the NFL or like, you know. Disney. Disney, (laughs) like Disney brain flakes, Mickey Mouse brain flakes, whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, no excuses, but it's hard. You know, it's hard. And then you always have to make you like, well, how much how much cash flow is this generating? And then you're like, well, how much is the endorsement going to cost? How much cash flow is is our sales going to go up from the endorsement in order to support the sales from that endorsement? Do I have enough cash to support the inventory? (laughs) Next thing you know, you're like, and then what if it doesn't work? And you're like, oh, so it's hard. But we have a strategy. We're executing on it. And um, I think uh, I think it'll be successful. And when it is, it'll look obvious in retrospect. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. What were some interesting strategic inflection points that were gone over in the book? So he he told the one about Intel, obviously switching from memory to microprocessors. He also speaks about some of some other companies. What were some of the ones that you, both of you found the most interesting? Did he mention Next as yes. one? Um, for having to switch from making physical box computers to solely an operating system, which then got them purchased by Apple. Yeah. Yeah. He, he only told kind of part of the story. So he didn't even tell the part of the story about them being purchased by Apple, but that was a good one. Right. So next was Steve Jobs company between his two stints at Apple besides Pixar, where they were building computers, really high end computers with a really, really advanced operating system called next step. And they weren't selling a lot of the computers. Uh, they were selling tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands or millions of the computers. And they had invested a ton in the hardware, um, in the design of the hardware and having their own automated factory. And that was it took too long for them to realize, wow, our golden goose really could be the operating system because the operating system was like 20 years ahead of its time. It's still what iOS and Mac OS today is based on. It's still based on that operating system next step. So it was way ahead of its time. Uh, but it took a while to say, you know what, we got to be brave enough to ditch the hardware and just totally focus on the software. And when they finally did, they got bought by Apple a couple of years after they switched to software only. And then that's how Next Step became the basis of modern Apple. Apple getting wrecked by Windows, their idea was going a vertically integrated computer versus the Windows model, which you'll explain to me much better than I could ever. Yeah, he goes into that in a lot of detail, but ironically, it doesn't make that much sense when you look at it from 2020. When you look at it in 97, it made a ton of sense because Apple was on the brink of bankruptcy in 97. 
But basically, you know, Windows is a horizontal model, right? Each of the individual manufacturers make their own PCs and Microsoft sells them the operating system. Apple was a fully integrated model, right? They manufacture both the computer, the Macintosh, and the operating system for it, Mac OS, right? And now they've announced they're even going to start making the chips. So. Right, they're going to even start making the chips. So they were so they were getting decimated by the strategy in the 90s. But it turns out for for smartphones, the fully vertically integrated like situation actually makes a ton of sense because you can actually get some synergies there between hardware and software that when two different companies are making the hardware versus the software, you don't get the same uh, nice interplay. Although Android has succeeded more than Apple in terms of global market share, but in terms of profitability, it's, it's basically all going to Apple and I guess you know Samsung a little bit. Yeah, Apple makes 90% of the profits in the smartphone market. So one interesting thing is actually companies have been going the other way. Companies have been now in the computer industry been going back towards vertically integrated. So for example, Microsoft now makes its own hardware. You buy a Surface Book, that's Microsoft hardware running a Microsoft operating system. Google has tried to make its own hardware. It's never been very successful. It sells its Pixel phones. You know, it sells its own version of the Chromebook, uh, but it's never been super successful doing that. But Apple has been extremely successful, obviously, in the last 20 years with the fully vertically integrated strategy. So if we were reading this book today, you would kind of have to, you know, you have to revise a little bit of that. But I would argue that this stuff kind of comes in cycles, right? So let's say you have a player in the market that is fully vertically integrated and you want to compete with them because it's a, it's a big market or something like that, right? But what are you, you, you can't always compete just by vertically integrating more, right? It's too difficult. So Apple is making the chips, the phones, you know, and the, and the software, right? So if I want to compete with Apple, do I have to make the chips, the phones, the software, and I got to do the manufacturing in China? I got to start like opening my own plants and doing the Foxconn job. So no, there's, you know, how am I going to come up with a way to compete with Apple just in the middle of this podcast? It's hard, but probably I got to like attack some sort of sliver of that vertically integrated value stack. Whereas on the flip side, right, if you have a if you have a like a horizontally dominant player like Microsoft, probably the only way to compete with them or one of the best ways to compete with them. Sorry about my phone is to vertically integrate. And that's kind of what vertically integrate. But to that last book, do something totally different at the same time, too, which is what uh, Apple has done. You brought up a great point, which is that they're vertically integrated in terms of design, but not in terms of manufacturing. So Foxconn manufactures a lot of Apple's products. Uh, Hanhai manufactures a lot of Apple's products. And even like the, the chips, Apple designs the chips, but Taiwan Semiconductor actually manufactures the chips, like their, their microprocessors. So they, they're totally vertically integrated in terms of design. They design every bit of the software. They design every bit of the hardware. They design the microprocessors, and et cetera. But they don't actually do the physical labor of building them. They contract that out to other companies. So they're not vertically integrated in the way that we would traditionally say, let's say, a 60s conglomerate might be. I think Xiaomi is probably like the most interesting like potential Apple attacker right now. And basically what they've decided to do is one, go after a completely different market and two, focus on open. So like built, they, you know, have their own stores that are, you know, very branded and look like it's all Xiaomi, but those are all created by different companies that are, you know, paying them to be able to, you know, use the Xiaomi brand. And I think, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting space. I certainly don't own any Xiaomi products, but if I lived in China right now, I'm sure I would, you know, probably Maybe I would still have an iPhone, but everything else would probably be Xiaomi. Yeah, but Xiaomi shamelessly copies Apple. Like, there's they tr make their some of their software look like almost identical at points, and it's it's almost like that country just has a knack for that. I thought another really interesting uh, inflection point example, just that I hadn't I hadn't really thought about, like why this had happened, is the uh, the shipping technology when we switched to containers that Singapore and Seattle like ma made the switch, but San Francisco and New York did not, and like those ports just don't exist anymore that like that was such a fundamental thing it took a ton of investment and whatnot but that like if you don't you know move into that future like those those seaports areas are now like you know restaurants and hotels and stuff and then those cities they they don't exist anymore it was a big part of la i mean la's got a lot going for it that san francisco doesn't the weather's better but la is like our principal west coast port and i think that benefits them quite a bit a couple others that he mentions are walmart 
and how Walmart meant like the death knell for a lot of mom and pop stores. And he also mentions how movies with sound kind of put out of business a lot of successful silent movie actors. <laughs> that was a funny one, but he, he's totally right. Um, with Walmart, Walmart is like such a good one because everything about the way Sam Walton conducted himself and just like Walmart is just like, nah, that's a blip. That's not a strategic. It's like, oh, this guy with a Southern draw who's from Arkansas, Arkansas of all places. Like, yeah, I don't know if that guy is just going to be taking over retail. But he just like silently worked away at it. And next thing you know, he was wiping out the competition, including Giants, basically like Sears. So there's several different things that Andy Grove says can be the cause of a strategic inflection point. A lot of the ones we've mentioned are actually technology. Right. So we mentioned how technology allowed shipping containers to change. The technology of distribution, you could say, allowed Walmart. The technology of movies allowed uh, moving pictures with sound. What's the technology that you think right now is creating strategic inflection points in various industries? I mean, like mobile distribution and everything has obviously been like the big one, but it's it's kind of old, old at this point. But like, you know, the Internet and then the the mobile revolution that allowed you know, independent indie developers to create applications and distribute them to everyone without, you know, needing to get big box stores to sell your software and stuff like that has, has really changed a ton of things. Uh, machine learned photo editing. So, I mean, we're kind of, I'm not an expert in this and we're kind of at the beginning of this type of re- revolution. But, you know, once upon a time, if you wanted to take a selfie and make yourself look better in that selfie, your only option was to crack open Photoshop or open source GIMP and, <laughs> and edit that thing yourself or outsource it to a designer. And now you basically can just run a few algorithms on that, 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 that picture in order to make your selfie look better instantly. And so there are probably a lot of other things like that with machine learning that machine learning is beginning to kind of claw its way out. Xiaomi has it built into the phones. But yeah, machine learning in general is probably a, a good one for, you know, where are things changing from like historically needing experts to sort of figure out what the strategic next direction is and stuff like that. And instead, sort of black box algorithms that are, you know, figuring out what the, the best thing for a customer to be served and stuff like that without any like human knowledge of exactly what it is that means this is the, the right thing to show right now. Talk about blips too, right? So I, I would argue that two blips in the last 10 years would be virtual reality and 3D printing. Internet of things, not a, not a blip. That's real. Um, but, you know, so. Virtual reality has like been on the forefront of, every, of some people saying it's going to be the next big thing for like 30 years. Nintendo came out with a virtual reality console in the 1990s. That was a total flop. I wouldn't say the current ones are total flops. I mean, they're, they're obviously used by millions of people. But at the same time, it's not like everyone is super excited. Like your average consumer is not super excited about virtual reality right now. I think the pandemic has proven to me that it's at least if it's ever going to happen, it's at least another decade. Because like now is clearly the time that VR should be you know taking off. Companies should be sending you know Oculus sets to all their employees so that they can feel like they're, you know, working together again. And none of that seems to be happening. I mean, I've seen a few like, you know, people on Twitter saying that that's what they're doing, but it certainly doesn't seem like that's taken off, even though now seems like the best opportunity ever for it. Yeah, great point. 3D printing has definitely had an impact on some small time manufacturers. Like I have a friend who works at a startup up here that makes electric planes, and they produce a lot of the parts for the electric planes using 3D printers. So it allows kind of some some innovation in small time manufacturers that wouldn't be they told you know I I got a tour of the company they told me it wouldn't be possible what they're doing without 3D printers. So, you know, it's allowing some people to to innovate in interesting ways, but it's not as a consumer product. It's just most people are just not excited about it. Yeah, as a consumer product, very few applications. So our experience with 3D printing for this product, basically we tried to 3D print a bunch of new parts and stuff like that. And we just couldn't get the tolerances to where they needed to be. And so what we've actually decided to do is just use cheap, crappy metal and to just bang it out in a third world country. So we're just going to make cheap, crappy molds to make our prototypes. And we're going to get a more accurate 
part that is also going to be more consistent with the proper manufacturing process, which is more similar to, you know, cheap, crappy metal. We use nicer metal for the actual product than it is the 3D printing. But that those are some blips. I got a I got like a good quote type thing that I think is important for people's lives. All right. So Andy Grove turns back to Gordon Moore of Moore's Law fame. And he asks, if we got kicked out and the board brought in a new CEO, what do you think he would do? Gordon answered without hesitation. He would get us out of memories. I stared at him numb and then said, why shouldn't you and I walk out the door, come back and do it ourselves? All right. So we already talked about this, but I think it's like a really important like psychological trick that you can play on yourself. So whether you have your own business, you have your own career, or like you just want to fix something in your life, like maybe conceptualize yourself as someone else, like an outsider and just be like, well, what should, what should Molson do with X? What should Molson do with Y? And I think that that can kind of like open you up to options that you didn't think you have. And in some ways can kind of like push you towards those options. Yeah, I think I think I, I totally agree. I, I think the I'm not sure that I'm personally that great at doing that, like actually being able to put myself in the shoes of this outsider coming in. But it's definitely something that, you know, I had in, at the top of my list of key takeaways from this and something that I'll certainly try to do. But and yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. The, the other quote is uh, the replacement of corporate heads is far more motivated by the need to bring in someone who is not invested in the past than to get somebody who is a better manager or a better leader in other ways. So it's, it's really not that like the old CEO is certain, necessarily bad at being a CEO. It's, it's the momentum of like the success before. It's just really hard to, to break from that. I like this. Here's one bouncing around a little bit. And this is talking about how to know when, how to recognize things that are indicative of a future strategic inflection point. In the earlier story about memories, Intel visitors to Japan came back with the report that Japanese businessmen who had previously been very respectful of us now seemed to look at us with a newfound derision. Something's changed. It's different now, said people when they returned from Japan. And this comment and observations like it heightened our awareness that a real change was upon us. I can totally relate to that with my suppliers. That was a big theme throughout that I, I don't think we've really talked about so far, which is like that the CEO needs to trust the the Cassandras, the middle managers who are on the front lines, that they're going to be the ones that are more likely to see these uh, inflection points coming because they really are talking to customers every day or, you know, whatever. It's the up in the ivory tower, you might get distance from this. And so you need to have open access to your employees and give them an opportunity to speak to you and really listen to what it is that they say. It doesn't mean they're going to be right every time, but if you keep hearing the same thing from these different middle managers, it's certainly something that you should be reflecting on, even if you know your direct reports are telling you it's not worth worrying about. Uh, yeah. Another thing that he recommends is that you need to get as close to the customer as possible. I think he said, like, I forget what he was like. He said that Compaq, which was one of his, this wasn't about memories versus microprocessors, but he said that Compaq, and I would even get closer than this, but Compaq, which was one of his customers, was telling him that he needed to do this this one type of chip over this other yeah. type of chip. And the idea was that, you know, Compaq is in direct co- contact with consumers, right? Yeah. They're selling the computers and they're to them. But uh, yeah, forget going to your brick and mortar distribution. Like, go get yourself into the store. Go like touch and feel like your actual final product. Put yourself out there. Go see your suppliers. Go try to buy your competitors' products in the market. What do you see? That's how you can get a real sense that things are changing. At the end of the book, he's talking about your sort of Internet of Things and like how that could be disruptive to uh, to Intel success. And like he basically, I think it might even be like the very conclusion of the book is that he wants like the company to build that themselves, like that they should create this you know new technology that's going to whatever make intel chips useless any in the future i don't know that they really went anywhere with that and i think he'd stop being the ceo by then although he was still chairman and he was still going into the office every day um but i thought that was a you know an interesting idea he tries to he tries to say like let's not wait for you know the this new competition to come out of the woodwork and beat us let's try and you know be that ourselves yeah that was about internet appliances i think right yeah exactly and he was talking about how there you know there are these concepts that Maybe we will um, have sort of centralized computers that are doing like the hard tasks and there will be these much cheaper sort of 
appliances that uh, consumers will have, and it won't really have the capabilities that you know the current PCs do. But they'll have these other capabilities that are, that are fine. And in some ways, that's like is happening now with mobile and whatnot. There is, and we we kind of talked about that on a, a prior episode, in the sense of you know having whatever some stuff being done centralized places, and then you know as the the software gets passed off to the customer, you don't have to have all of the processing happening you know on your on your local machine, but his point was that those were going to be slow and crappy and that consumers never want to move back in technology, even if it is a lot cheaper. So it kind of like goes against kind of the Christensen creative uh, disruption concept that, you know, you can make something that's, you know, 10x cheaper, or 10x better. Um, but like you, you can make something that's not as good. And if it's that much cheaper, like it just does totally change the game. His point was no one is going to use that product that's that's worse than what there was. No one wants a you know, black and white TV, even though maybe it would only be 40 bucks now because they want the new technology, they want the future thing. And I guess to Christensen's point, it wasn't the companies that were buying mainframes that then bought the microcomputers or whatever. It was it was new businesses that did that. It was new things that that used the new technology and it became a larger market because of those new customers. But it probably was true that the the people who had a mainframe, they needed the mainframe and the mini computer couldn't do what they needed um, the mainframe for. But, you know, so much more could be done with that with that cheaper computer. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those Internet appliances did come out in the late 90s, early 00s. Companies like Sun Microsystems, Oracle shipped Internet appliances, but nobody bought them because they didn't run Windows. So even though they had a web browser and you could get and they had usually pretty weak microprocessors and they were cheap and you could browse the web on them, people wanted to do more than just browse the web on their computer, even though browsing the web might be the majority of what they wanted to do. And so because they were limited in some way, people didn't want them. And then the other thing that happened just a few years after this book came out is that the price of PCs uh, really shattered that $500 mark. So starting in the early 00s, you started to see sub $500 PCs. And then what's the point of buying an internet appliance for the same price when you can get a PC? What's an internet appliance? They were basically just cut down computers that ran an operating system that basically just had a web browser. And so they they weren't running Windows, they weren't running Mac OS. A Chromebook, basically. It was basically the Chromebook of its time. Yeah. And there's a place for that. But back then, there was still a lot of stuff that wasn't on the web yet that you wanted to do on your computer. Nowadays, you can do a lot of things on the web that you couldn't do 20 years ago. So for example, if you want to do photo editing, right? There's great like online photo editing apps now. But 20, in the year 2000, you want to do photo editing. The, you couldn't really do that on the web. You had to do that in like iPhoto or in, you know, Adobe, whatever. So it was a different time. I remember in 2010, I actually bought an Asus like $200 laptop. And the reason that I did that was exclusively to be able to stream Netflix because when Netflix first went live with streaming, it was on Microsoft Silverlight and I had a Mac. And so you couldn't watch it from a Mac. So I, so I did buy a $200. I mean, it, it was a, I guess it's technically a full laptop, but obviously I had like no real processing power and whatnot, but it really was just uh, to be able to stream Netflix. But the key thing is it ran Windows. It did indeed. Yeah. And so these internet appliances in the late 90s, early O's didn't run Windows. Question for you guys. I think this one's a good one. What does it say about Andy Grove and his tenure at Intel that he literally wrote the book on strategic inflection points, how to adapt to them, how you always need to be paranoid, and then Intel proceeded to bungle the next strategic inflection point, which was making chips for mobile. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's the uh, obvious criticism of Intel for the last like 20 years. They, and, you know, the craziest part about it is that they actually had a division making art. So the ARM instruction set is the instruction set used in the, at almost every mobile device today, whether it's an iPhone or an Android phone, an iPad or an Android tablet. Intel had their own ARM microprocessors. They were licensing the ARM instruction set from ARM Holdings, and it was called StrongArm. And it actually made its way into some pocket PCs in the late 90s and early 00s. And Intel sold off that division. Can you believe that? And then they, they thought that they were going to get x86 chips into, which is the microprocessor architecture in your Mac or your PC today. Um, they thought they were going to get those into, into mobile devices, but it's too power hungry. And they, they had the chips that were not too power hungry and they sold it off because they were, they were so wholly focused on the x86 architecture and their mainline chips. 
Do you think that still would have happened if Andy was still there? I guess that's that's a question, too. I mean, I think he was the chairman until 2004. So do you know when they when they sold off the I'm going to look it up while Kopech looks it up. So who are the big players in chip manufacturing who kind of took Intel's would be role? Qualcomm? Qualcomm, uh, Broadcom, and um, are you talking about fabs or are you talking about design? Because those are two different things. Uh, Well, Intel was doing both, right? Intel still does both, right. And they're one of the only companies that's still vertically integrated doing both. Most companies are either design or fabs. Like even Intel's chief competitor, Samsung is both. Samsung is both. But even um, Intel's chief competitor in the PC market, which is AMD, they used to be vertically integrated, but they actually sold off their fabs to a company called Global Foundries. And they now actually use Taiwan Semiconductor, the same company that Apple uses to manufacture their chips. Okay. So how would this have gone down, right? So the iPhone comes out, right? And then I think um, Grove was... Why do I think this? But for some reason, I think that Grove dismissed the iPhone when it came out, kind of in in a Balmerian kind of way, Steve Ballmer. Am I wrong? Okay, so they sold off their ARM assets in 2006 to Marvel Technology Group. Okay, so it was after Grove had stepped down. Bob Iger just swooped in. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that too. (laughs) Um, All right, so like, why don't we break this one down? Because it's pretty weird. So the iPhone comes out and they must have just been like, this is going to be another Palm Pilot. It's not just it's not just iPhone though, because it, it's every mobile device uses the ARM microprocessor architecture. Yeah, but like, how did they not like put their? How did they not be like, oh snap? No pun intended, because Qualcomm makes those Snapdragon processors, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah, they how do. do I, like I, this is the future, and we don't want to be stuck doing the two thousands equivalent of mainframes. Like, how did they not get in there? Did they just not have the technology to do it? Because they had sold it off? They have faced real difficulty making extremely low-powered chips. And you, you have to also acknowledge that there's a big network effect here. Okay, So software that, that's compiled for the ARM microarchitecture will not run on the x86 microarchitecture. Okay. So if you're uh, like making Android, right? They actually had to make, for a while, they made an x86 version of Android. I don't know if they even still maintain it. But there were actually a few phones that came out with x86 chips and a few tablets that came out with x86 chips that ran Android. But like you have to literally make two versions of the operating system then, one for ARM, one for x86. Apple, it's rumored later this month, is going to be announcing that they're transitioning Macs from Intel microprocessors to ARM microprocessors designed by them. Okay. um, So an ARM is a separate company that's now owned by SoftBank. That's right. So ARM is I, has a long and storied history. Actually, Apple was one of the original investors in ARM in the late 80s, early 90s. But um, yeah, ARM is, a, is the company that does design, but they do not do fabs. So okay. they, they license the design to other companies like Apple and Qualcomm and used to be Intel. And like we said, Intel got out of that. And then in, Apple and Qualcomm will modify those designs from ARM and then they will use a fab like Taiwan Semiconductor to actually do the manufacturing. I get it now. So Intel was like, yeah, we could be a fab only in, in mobile, but we're an American company. We're just going to get killed by Asia if we do that. So that's like kind of like the problem that they faced. They were just kind of like too late, right? So fab at Intel has been a real problem for a while now. So for about five years, they've been stuck on what's called the 14 nanometer process node. That's how thick the transistors are. So nanometer is a billionth of a meter, right? So the TSMC process, Taiwan Semiconductor, is now down to five nanometers, and Intel still start at 14. Now there's controversy about whether when TSMC says five, if it's really five. So their five might really be like an Intel 10. But like Intel's just moving to 10 now. Usually, you know, Moore's Law, you talked about it earlier, right? It used to be that we would get a smaller process node about every two years. Intel's been stuck on 14 nanometers for like five or six years now um, and just getting to 10 nanometers now. So they're being- America. 
Yeah, <laughs> they're being really destroyed. So if they were fabulous like AMD, Intel might be doing a lot better right now. You know, fabulous I, is fabulous. Not that they're not doing well. They still dominate servers and PCs, but AMD is really actually catching up with them in PCs and servers right now. Yeah, we should acknowledge that Intel is still a $250 billion market cap company, I think, at this point. So while they, but, but, but maybe they would have been a trillion dollar company if they you know, won in mobile too. Who knows? Lower the writing's kind of on the wall right now. Depending on when you're looking at that. I'm just kidding. Bad jokes. I think one thing we didn't cover that I, th- I think is, is good. He talked a lot about how how the CEO spends time and deploys resources is what really shows whether or not the company is changing directions and inspires people that like you can say you can make a big announcement and whatnot. But if you're still spending all your time focusing on the old thing, then everyone's going to know that you're still spending your time that way. And so um, here I have uh, when Intel was making its transformation from a semiconductor company to a microcomputer company, I realized that I needed to learn more about the software world. After all, how we would do our job depended on the plans, thoughts, desires, and visions of the software industry. So I deliberately started to spend a significant amount of time getting acquainted with software people. I set out to visit heads of software companies. I called them up one at a time, made appointments, met with them, and asked them to talk to me about their business as if, it, as it were, to teach me. And then he also says, take a look at a representative calendar of the CEO of a major corporation that was in the middle of a strategic inflection point. Does his allocation of time, his most precious resource, reflect the strategic crisis? I don't think so. He is by no means unique. Frankly, as I look back, I have to wonder if it was an accident that I devoted a significant amount of my time in the years preceding our memory episode, years during which the storm clouds were already very evident to uh, to writing a book. And as I write this, I wonder what storm clouds I might be ducking now. I'll probably know in a few years. Wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they weren't. They were doing mobile back then with, with ARM, you know? Yeah, but- the, the miss came much later. He was old by then. Um, I have another one to David's point. Uh, this is about how you have to like broadcast the same message over and over again in order to get your employees to understand that the change has occurred. You need to answer these questions in a single phrase that everybody can remember and over time can understand to mean exactly what you intended. In 1986, when we came up with the slogan, Intel, the micro microcomputer company, that was exactly what we were trying to achieve. So like I imagine him just like literally they changed the slogan of the company to be like, we're a microcomputer company. And it was only then that he was able to really get people on board with the idea of allocating more resources to microprocessors. I got another one. You were trying to define what the company will be, yet that can only be done if you also undertake to define what the company will not be. It's tough, man. It's tough when you got like literally, I don't know, they must have had like 100,000 employees, maybe less on I think they did do some layoffs when they did make the the shift. So they were able to keep, I think, all of the factory or no, I think they sold off their original factory, which was like apparently like not located very conveniently and stuff like that. But other than that, they I think they kept most of the, the manufacturing capacity and you know shifted it from memory to microprocessors, but they did have to to do a fair amount of layoffs when they when they made the shift because you know they were giving up so much revenue. All right. All right. So who would you recommend this book to and how would you rate it? compared to high output management. <laughs> All right. So I wouldn't recommend this book to like everyone unless they, and this is going to sound weird, unless they also listen to this podcast at the same time, because I felt like we made it more relatable in a way. But if I'm being specific, like if you're the CEO of a big company, for sure, you should read this book. But few people are that. How would I rate the book? I mean uh forgetting uh high output management which is a masterpiece uh, masterpiece i'd rate rated three or four stars some good nuggets of wisdom but like eh, there's better stuff to read and yeah i think i gave it four stars i think it's good i think sort of the, the middle chapters were really my favorites where he goes into the the stories of the uh the memory shift to microprocessors and then lays out a lot of his you know, actual understanding of strategic inflection points and things like that. Yeah, I would say I'm probably going to do a summary um, and maybe you should just read that instead of reading the whole book. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty short book. It's only 200 pages, but it is pretty repetitive. And I, I agree with David that the middle part of the book is the part most worth reading. Um, but you can you could probably get the same information in about 10 pages. But the anecdotes are fun. And if you like the computer industry like I do, then, you know, you might might be worth reading the whole book. Yeah. Okay. So next month, we are actually not reading a book. We're doing a recap episode. We're going to 
call it the end of our first season of the show. And we're going to go over the 12 books we read this year and kind of rate them and talk about the ones that we thought were the best and the ones that we thought were the worst. Is there anything this month that either of you want to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you? Yeah, guys, at the end of the season, I'm going to be replaced by Paul Graham. Uh, (laughs) uh, No. All right. So I I wrote an article on Medium called The Right to a Non-Consensus Opinion. And uh, you can Google it. You should go read it. That's what I want to plug. And people get in touch with me by Carrier Pigeon and on Twitter. Molson underscore heart is my username. And you can find me on Twitter at David G. Short. And I also just started a personal website. So you can find my writing on productandpayments.com. Someone registered molsonheart.com. Yeah. And it's a- Go ahead. That's, that's interesting because you have a pretty unique name. So I'm a little surprised. What, was it you? No, it wasn't me. I, somebody owns davidkopak.com. I had to buy davekopak.com. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to plug a podcast interview. I've done a lot of podcast interviews the last couple of years promoting my books, but my most personal is coming out this month. It was literally a fever pitch. It was when I either had coronavirus or the flu and I had a fever while I was giving it. And it's really like very personal and deep and intimate. And it's on the Profitable Python podcast. It's going to be coming out later this month. And also I'm starting another podcast called um, Copec Explained Software is going to be kind of explaining software to lay people, so not for programmers. And so I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's a power name. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Power name. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. It's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice, and we'll see you next month. 